0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I hope all of you are doing well, and I hope all of you have had a good weekend. Hard to believe um, tomorrow marks the start of another uh, upcoming full week. But nonetheless, I'm glad to be back on the air with you guys. I know some of you are probably wondering, when is Kirk going to come back on the air? Well... I'm here I am. I'm on the air and I'm ready to go here shortly with another uh podcast segment episode to uh Rebels at Sea: Privateering in the American Revolution by Eric J. Dolan. I will um I want to give you all uh, a heads up notice here for this upcoming uh podcast uh, segment episode. I probably did tell you all something about it uh f- towards the end of the previous episode, but this episode that we're going to be discussing about um is going to be, uh, some of you might view it as sensitive. uh, And what I mean by sensitive is, um, how do I say it? Um, We must be reminded that during the American Revolutionary War, that uh, both sides um, inflicted um, what we would think of in today's time as uh, injustices uh, against um, the other side. And... In this uh, podcast uh, segment episode, we're going to be learning about um, about the um, injustices that the uh, British inflicted upon the Americans. Not just not from a battlefield perspective, because oftentimes we, when we think of injustices in the American Revolutionary War, we tend to think of what happened along a battlefield, but we do forget about uh, injustices that occurred aboard um, ships. And we're not just talking about, you know, capturing um, the opposition and um, forcing them to surrender. We have to be reminded that uh, during the, um, throughout the American Revolutionary War, a good number of prisoners were uh, relegated to being confined aboard uh, prison ships. So we are going to be learning about um, various things, uh, such as uh, conditions aboard the prison ships, Uh, We are going to learn about um, where uh, Americans were stationed, that is, uh, prisoners of war during the time of the Revolutionary War. Uh, We will be um, talking about uh, two prisons, I can tell you, in uh, England, and then we're going to talk about um, a particular uh, ship that was stationed um, not on the outskirts of New York City that was uh, known for... um, Terrible atrocities to American prisoners. Now, again, I'm not here to uh, gross you all out. I'm not here to. um, I'm not here to scare you all out of your wits. But I just want to make you all aware that um, that there were um, that atrocities did go beyond uh, the battlefield, but that uh, there were a lot of um, people or soldiers. I should say soldiers. let, Let me take it back. Privateersmen whom um not only uh, not only made the ultimate sacrifice in terms of uh protecting those on land but they also made the ultimate uh, sacrifice by protecting other uh fellow privateers men whom uh, survived uh, being on the waters uh, and many of you all will be alarmed uh, by the end of this uh, podcast segment just how many uh, men uh, lost their lives uh, due to um, either disease or just let alone being that of a prisoner uh, throughout the American Revolutionary War. So we do need to keep in mind, though, that it was one thing for a soldier to lose his life in the war, but they weren't always able to die on a battlefield. Although being on a battlefield probably was the safest place versus um, being a prisoner, but it is important to be reminded of the fact that uh, not everyone... um, not everyone was able to die peacefully. Um, I can't imagine what it would have been like having been a prisoner of war uh, even in the American Revolutionary War but I do believe it is important that we learn as much as possible and as I've said many of times before and I can say it again that as much as I do enjoy learning about history, I have to be reminded that uh, history has not always been pretty and that there have been um, that there have been um, unfortunate um, events that have cur- that have occurred um in history where uh mankind has not been um where mankind has done things that um that are um unthinkable that are um that are beyond um beyond uh, horrible if if that's if that's the best uh 101 interpretation that I can give to you all and and again I'm this podcast segment that we're going to be discussing about it's uh, my intentions are not to um my intentions are not to gross you all out, but it's just more of a reminder of what did take place, and the uh, injustices that uh, that the British did inflict upon um, American privateersmen, whom um, whom became prisoners of uh, war. And it wasn't just the American privateersmen, uh, Navy men were uh, prisoners, including uh, soldiers um, who fought on land, so it wasn't confined to just one sector. But I do believe it's time for us to get the uh, ball rolling and be prepared for our 1st uh, leadoff question, so here we go. What problem did Britain face in the midst of her privateering achievements? Well, for one, her privateer crews not only seized prizes from enemy vessels, but on top of all captured goods came American soldiers and mariners, or what we would think of as Navy men and privateersmen, whom now were viewed and treated as prisoners of war, or what we think of um, in, in short abbreviation term POW, or POWs, I should say. All captured American soldiers and mariners fell under the category as prisoners of war under international law. You know, when we think of international law, sometimes it's easy to think of that um, subject of law as something that would be for more modern day term use. But I should uh, point out that even in the 18th century, there was such a thing as international law. But how is it that American soldiers and mariners could now all could now all of a sudden fall under the category as prisoners of war under international law. Well, this simply um, means here, folks, that Britain could still view her ex-subjects, being the 13 colonies, as a foreign entity, meaning both the Crown and Parliament wouldn't accept America's new status. Okay. Yes, Uh, the thirteen colonies, as we all know, have rebelled. They have uh, declared their separation from Britain. They have—they've all banded together to form the new United States. But does Parliament and the uh, Crown and do they accept us? No, they don't accept us. They can't. They don't want to accept the fact that we have uh, severed ties. Of course. You know, yes, we do have those who are loyalists and neutrals, but even those people um, aren't, not all loyalists are still in, in the newly created United States. We know that many loyalists have left to go to Canada or to Nova, well, Nova Scotia, being part of Canada, but they have gone uh, primarily to Halifax, Nova Scotia, or over to England. Um, so not all loyalists are still uh, in America. But the bottom line is, is that um, Parliament and the Crown, given that they are not accepting America's new status, that means that, um, that they have the uh, rights to not um, want view, to view her uh, ex-subjects as a uh, foreign entity. Now, British officials uh, feared American prisoners as being treated the same like natural-born British citizens on the grounds of constitutional right to habeas corpus. I believe most of us know what habeas corpus is, but for those of you who aren't really familiar with it, I'll uh, give you a uh, 101 interpretation of what habeas corpus is. That basically means, uh, habeas corpus I'll say, means that there is an order requiring a person or persons under arrest whom whom have already been arrested to be brought before a judge or into a court of law which would determine whether or not there were um, lawful grounds or we could say probable cause for one's imprisonment. In other words, let the judge hear the evidence to make of course, in modern-day times, it would be his or her uh, d- determination, but in uh, 18th century times, folks, will keep in mind that ju- uh, judges, those who serve as uh, a judge, is uh, that of a man. So, you know, habeas corpus, yes, it's an order that requires a person or uh, persons whom are, uh, who've been placed under arrest to be brought before a judge or into a, um, a courtroom of law which would determine whether or not there were uh, lawful grounds for one's imprisonment. If there were not any lawful grounds for one's imprisonment, then the defendant was set free. If habeas corpus was approved by British officials, then it would be fair to say that Britain's courts would have been burdened with an ever with a never-ending list of prisoner cases. Well, I can only imagine just how many um, prisoner cases um, the British uh, judicial system would have been uh, forced to take up had um, high-level British officials, along with the Crown and Parliament, had, had they all consented by giving in and saying well okay then these american prisoners should be treated the same as natural born british citizens we will give them the rights to habeas corpus i can only imagine that the number would have would have exceeded well um beyond a thousand i don't know why i say that but i just have a, if not a thousand maybe just shy of it but the bottom line is that if uh, if uh, american prisoners are given habeas corpus Think about um, what other legal steps are going to have to uh, take place. You know, then you, you, you know, how many lawyers or is the uh, British judiciary system going to be able to obtain uh, not just for one um, for one American prisoner, but how about um, multiple American prisoners? And we should keep, be reminded that even in uh, colonial days, you know very few people could actually afford a lawyer. So if you, um, if you were uh, in colonial America, uh, colonial America days, if you were well-to-do and say you were of gentry status, but you needed a lawyer to represent you in court over some legal matter, you wouldn't have any trouble hiring someone. But if you were, um, someone of a middling family whose income was only 12 pounds a year and you had a, had an issue that um, was uh, legal uh, related. I don't know if being able to afford a lawyer would have been something you could have done given um, you're only bringing in 12 pounds a year. So just keep in mind folks that not everyone, um, not everyone, not everyone could uh, ha- get access to a lawyer. And more often than not, if you could not afford a lawyer and you were charged, say, with theft, for example, you had to defend yourself in court. Sure, you could bring uh, some wit. You could bring some people to to uh, to defend you in terms of um, testifying on your behalf. But if you cannot afford a lawyer, your best bet was that you would you know represent yourself in terms of uh, proving your um, innocence uh, before um, before the uh, jury. Well, under. Um, The prime minister, I should point out, uh, Britain's prime minister in early 1777 is Lord North. Under his administration, Parliament passed a law in early 1777 enabling British authorities to detain American prisoners as long as necessary without providing them any access to the courts, a.k.a. legal system. You know, sometimes we hear of situations today where, um, depending on what the circumstances are, that um, sometimes um, nation, a nation or nations can um, detain uh, prisoners from another nation as long as necessary without um, bringing um, those individuals to trial. Um, it's It can be done for a whole host of reasons, uh, if that tells you how complicated it can be. But even in 1777, Parliament's making it very complicated. It's going to make it very complicated now for, um, for American prisoners. In other words, if you are a prisoner of war and you are under the um, domain of uh, British authority, Britain is now going to make it all the more difficult to those American prisoners without providing them any kinds of access to the court's legal system. Basically, if Americans were tried in court and found guilty, the end result would lead to uh, death by hanging. But Parliament doesn't want to go this route. They know that if they uh, start trying American prisoners in court and finding them guilty, and they end up uh, hanging countless numbers of American uh, prisoners of war, what could it lead to? It could lead to um, negative repercussions of all kind. How about further American retaliation, okay? So if uh, British officials start hanging um, multiple uh, American um, prisoner troop prisoners of war, and the same for privateers and uh, Navy men, and we learn about it um, 3,000 miles across the ocean well, we'll just start taking our um, anger out on the uh, British prisoners, wherever they may be, and uh, we can uh, decide to try them and do the same thing back. So I hate to say it, but it almost sounds like to me that if uh, Parliament were to go down the road of um, hanging um, American um, prisoners after trying them in court, it would almost be somewhat of a case of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I know that sounds a little barbaric, but that's what parliament is also trying to avoid. They don't want to go down that road and by not going down that road maybe they're also hoping that perhaps the war might end a little bit sooner. But of course, even in 1777, you know, parliament really they still they still have this notion that well this war is going to end sooner than later and once the war ends, our subjects 3,000 miles across the ocean will uh, resubmit their allegiance to the crown when it's all said and done with. Wishful thinking, though. However, um, in England, there is broad opposition to this law, and it's primarily the broad opposition is prim- primarily geared towards um, everyday ordinary uh, British people, that is the everyday ordinary citizens. And the broad opposition to the law itself is really It's pertaining to the suspension of uh, habeas corpus. As for Lord North, though, he uh, sees the law itself as a temporary measure regarding the high number of prisoners at the time of its enactment. And he truly believed that American rebels would over time be brought back under British authority and the Empire itself returned to what it was in pre-Revolutionary war times. Sadly, uh, the law dealing with American prisoners of war remained intact for about five years, folks. American prisoners in England often got treated poor, but not like those aboard British prison ships, which we will soon be learning about. Not just, And we're not talking British prison ships in Britain, folks. We're talking about the British prison ships in America where American soldiers, Navy men, and privateersmen endured the greatest of brunts, or I should say misfortunes or injustices. Okay, here we go about um, two particular prisons in England where uh, privateersmen got sent to. I don't expect any of you to know which two prisons in England that the privateersmen got sent to, but... I did obtain information about both of these prisons, uh, through not just so much through having read the book, um, but as a result of going back and reviewing what was uh, necessary and appropriate to discuss in this segment, uh, the, most, the utmost uh, relevant information about the uh, prisons, these two prisons. The answer is uh, Forton and Mill, which was also known as Old Mill or Mill Bay Prison. Both prisons combined held around 2,500 to 3,000 men altogether during the Revolutionary War. Prior to arrival at either prison, privateers got stripped of all their belongings except the clothes they were already wearing. So whatever other items you had with you folks, they were taken from you. So, you know, if you had something that was valuable perhaps a family heirloom as a means of um, reminding yourself about the family you've left behind, All that's now taken from you. That doesn't mean anything to the British authorities. So after um, having everything stripped except that of the clothes uh, privateersmen are already wearing, they got placed into ships, folks. Um, not just placed onto ships, they were placed into the ship's hold, where the cargo itself was normally stored. And the prisoners, folks, uh, were crowded side by side, only to be chained. The rations were uh, slightly average. In other words, they didn't even meet the minimal criteria. We're talking about, um, you know, food rations here now, folks. So they're slightly below average, and they're they're not the grandest. Once arriving to either one of the prisons, the privateersmen were brought before a judge, and they were asked a mul- they were asked um, various multiple questions. If any privateersman revealed that he was born in England, believe it or not, folks, if any privateersman did reveal that he was born in England, then he was um, more than likely to be um, impressed. And we learned about what impressment was early on uh, from a much earlier podcast segment episode. You know, when one is impressed, and we're talking about time of war, folks, that means that um, that uh, a group of sailors or a group of privateersmen, in this case, were forced against their own will to fight for the, uh, to fight or join the Royal Navy. So, in other words, now they're being forced to betray their own fellow uh, comrades whom they've, been, um, whom they've been side by side um, for X amount of time uh, during this uh, crisis or, or this uh, war with the mother country. Now, all of a sudden, they're being forced against their own will to switch sides. Regardless of uh, which prison uh, privateersmen entered, they were read regulations. They were expected to obey the keeper, or I should say the warden or supervisor. The keeper, uh, I should also say that they were expected to not only obey the keeper, but also the guards. Other um, stipulations occurred, such as um, not uh, complaining. Okay, That, that would be kind of a tough one there, especially if conditions aren't right or if something's not right. Um, but they were expected to assemble or gathered when called by the warden. They were um, privateer or imprisoned privateersmen were not to partake in fighting with one another. They were also required to clean up their lodgings. The prisoners uh, were given the right to oversee their that their food was properly prepared, which I was really blown away by. Because I would think it'd be fair to say that um, that um, it might be sadly fair to say that there probably were um, prison officials who probably did things that they weren't supposed to have done, but believe it or not, whether you were at Forton or at at uh, Mill or uh, Mill Bay, the prisoners were given the right to oversee that their food was being properly prepared, to making sure that it was adequately portioned per the per regulations and of uh, good good quality status. And we're not talking like top-of-the-line food, folks. It's just that, um, you know, if you're a prisoner, I mean, you do have a right, you would have had a right to have overseen that your food was being properly prepared. You would have wanted to have made sure that nothing uh, suspicious was being put into your food, such as um, a poison. I mean, you just don't know uh, what could be put into uh, something that would uh, make you sick, not just sick, Uh, in terms of um, not being properly cooked, but sick in terms of being deliberate. Now, if a problem did arise with um, with regards to what was mentioned above, then the prisoner himself could file a complaint with the warden, but it probably is fair to say that the warden himself would have had the final say over whether or not the complaint was adequate and whether or not there had been in fact a violation. Now interesting enough uh Mill Prison uh, comprised of four main buildings besides the prison itself you had a hospital okay so if you know if a prisoner or prisoners are sick they they there is a hospital on the grounds there is a commissary where all of your um provisions would have been um, stored from blank well from anything from anything that would have been essential such as uh food um, Flour, uh, which would have been used obviously for making the foods, uh, blankets, um, anything that would be essential for, um, for the use of a prisoner in terms of uh, making sure that their, um, that their needs were met to the uh, proper criteria. And then you had the administrative offices as well. Now, some of you are wondering... How many prisoners could this particular prison, being that of Mill Prison, hold up to? I can tell you this much, it's less than 1,000. How about 800? That's the number, that's the maximum number that Mill Prison could hold up to, was 800 prisoners. But believe it or not folks, it never got up to that number. The highest it got to was around 625, which is still a a pretty uh, decent size uh, number in terms of a uh, maximum. Now, I was blown away at this, but it, maybe it shouldn't have come as a surprise because you know it's so easy to forget sometimes that when we think of the Revolutionary War, we think of the Americans and the British, but of course we still have to be reminded that the French are on the side of the British, or on the side of the Americans, pardon me. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, <laughs> not a good response there just a second ago. So we do have to be reminded that the French are on the side of the Americans, And even the Spanish are, too. So, it's not just American privateers and Navy men who are prisoners. The prison itself held French, Spanish, and Dutch prisoners. So, it's not confined to just uh, one um, nation of men. The privateersmen, though, were considered to be of lower class level status. Is it fair to say that privateersmen had... Decent um, sleeping accommodations. I wished I could tell you yes, but the answer is no. For privateersmen, given that they were of lower class level, these uh, men often slept on hammocks or uh, straw beds. And did they have covers, folks? I hate to tell you this, there were no covers. On the other hand, if you were a naval officer. Being of course you know being an officer you are um, you are of a command of a, a regiment or a command of say of a ship. If you are a naval officer, not just a naval officer, but if there are naval officers that are prisoners of war, guess what, folks? They have better accommodations than the uh, average privateersman. Naval officers were given pillows and blankets. You know. It's one thing to be an officer, but I can't imagine all of my fellow men serving below me, not having pillows and blankets, and seeing them being reduced to um, being reduced to baggage, if that's the right word. Um, I I just can't imagine that. So I can't imagine knowing that here I am as an officer, sleeping with a pillow and a blanket. It was sleeping having a pillow for. Um, for better um, comfort and then a blanket to keep me warm while my um, fellow men below me are lucky enough just to be sleeping on a hammock or a straw bed but without essential um but without essential warmth and being that of a cover or a blanket It, it doesn't make sense but it but it happened unfortunately as for uh, Forton Prison, uh, that, is lo- that was uh, located in Gosport, on the opposite side of, of Portsmouth Harbor, um, from Portsmouth. Uh, and uh, Forton Prison was once a hospital for the Royal Navy's sick and uh, wounded uh, men. Now, the population of American prisoners at Forton only got to around 200 now um one thing i did uh, forget to mention um a short while back with regards to uh you know when we talked about how uh prisoners were given the right to oversee that their food was being properly prepared and making sure it was adequately portioned i think i thought it was worth uh, mentioning about uh food rations because i'm sure some of you were wondering okay if if any of us had been alive back then and became a prisoner of war at one of these uh two prisons in england what would our typical food rations have looked like. Well, here we go. Uh, food rations were the following, uh, being Sunday to Friday. Each man got one quart of beer, one pound of bread, three quarters of a pound of beef, and this beef was boiled and served with broth, to a half a pint of peas, Saturday On Saturdays, the beef was replaced with four ounces of butter or six ounces of cheese. From Sunday to Saturday daily, 9 to 2 p.m., prisoners could attend an open market located at the prison's front gate where they were allowed to buy anything from fruit, beverages, to clothes using their own money. Now, wait a minute. Prisoners having their own money? How are they getting their own money? Who? How are they earning it might be the bigger question. Well, one of the ways that prisoners earned money came from such things like making boxes or model ships that they could sell to visitors. So, is it fair to say that um, that the prisoners that uh, warden officials are seeing to it that the prisoners do things constructively as a means that would help keep them out of trouble. Perhaps so. I did read um, where there had been an attempted escape or two at one of the prisons. However, I was not able to incorporate that into this uh, segment uh, due to uh, time constraint uh, purposes. But the bottom line is that it is that there uh, had been an attempted um, escape at one of the uh, prisons. So it is fair to say that um, that prisoners did have an opportunity to um, escape the confines of jail life from Sunday to Saturday daily, nine to two p.m., where they could um, attend the open market and buy such things as fruit and beverages to clothes. So by using the money that came from, you know, making boxes and model ships. So, maybe, I don't know if there's any good out of this, but, um, but perhaps by being allowed to uh, come out into uh, an open market, perhaps there is some sanity left in these uh, men. Well, um, here's a question that I will uh, share with you all, and it did happen. Did prison guards act cruelly towards privateersmen prisoners? I wish I could tell you all that the answer was no, but the answer is yes. At times, uh, guardsmen would uh, sadly beat or insult their subjects. One guard at Fortin had often expressed interest in killing a handful of prisoners by provoking them deliberately into conflict. This um, guard uh, went about using a red-hot poker and when i think of uh pokers in uh, colonial times i often think of them as uh devices that um uh, that would have been used to go about branding someone um after finding the individual guilty of such crimes as uh theft and of course if uh, you know an individual was found guilty of theft they would have been branded with the letter t on their thumb meaning that no matter where they went out in public Anybody who saw them go by would know that that person had, at one point in his or her life, uh, committed a crime pertaining to theft. So, so yes, this particular uh, guardsman at Fortin, uh used a red-hot poker to burn holes in American in an in American um in American prisoner's uh, shirts that were hanging to dry. I just find that very odd that he would want to do that, especially with uh, clothes that are hanging to dry. But the prisoners pleaded with the guard to stop, but his but their pleas were ignored. That's a shame that even uh, people from within uh, the prison system who, okay, are supposed to keep, um, how do I say it, they're supposed to protect the public from uh, inmates who are, course we might think of in today's time inmates that could be seen as dangerous to society but uh, but yet we have uh, guardsmen or wardens doing things that they shouldn't be doing and I'm not trying to get political folks but sometimes we do hear of stories where sadly uh, prisoners are aren't being treated properly behind uh, closed doors all because a um, an official or a warden is doing things at his his or her personal expense um, to make uh, the lives of um prisoners all the more uncomfortable who are perhaps trying to um, better their lives by um, by not making the same mistakes again and it wouldn't it be fair to say that uh, that the prisoners at Forton in this case who were being harassed by that guardsman you know they obviously didn't do anything to to anger the particular guardsman it was the guardsman who uh, he was only he was only uh, interested in himself and all he cared about was creating trouble, even if it meant um, causing trouble to those behind bars who, uh, who he just simply didn't like. So, it, sadly, it, it went on. Despite unpleasant food conditions to moments of cruel and unusual treatments, many prisoners remained healthy. At Fortin, folks, the death rate for Americans was just under 6% whereas at Mill, the death rate was around 3.5%. That's pretty low, folks. Now, I mean, it could still be seen somewhat as a high number for its time, but oftentimes to me, in years past, I often thought of uh, when you know prisoners died, that it was, say, well above 10%. I don't know why I was always under that assumption, but it just it just was that way. But after having read this book, I was blown away that the percentage was uh, well below 10 percent, but knowing at Fortin, it was just under 6 percent. So, yes, it would have been yes, it's unfortunate to know that there were those who died in England as prisoners but knowing that it was well under 6% at um, was just under 6% at Fortin and not even close to 6% at Mill could be a blessing of sorts too but now we're moving on to um, the british uh, prison sh- prisoner ships of uh, war but before we can really get into all of that we've also we've got to focus on one particular ship and its history because this is going to be uh, a big uh, primary uh, focal point of what is left of our uh, podcast segment topic here. Here we go. Uh, what British ship got built in 1736 during a time of peace in England? The answer is the HMS Jersey. She was a 60-gun, fourth-rate ship of the line in Britain's Royal Navy. Why Why is she... Um, considered a fourth-rate ship. Well, the reason why she's called a fourth-rate ship, folks, is because she had over 30 guns and a crew comprising of 140 men. But during the 18th century, um, a fourth-rate ship required 46 to 60 guns uh, mounted, so she did meet the criteria of falling into the uh, um, fourth-rate line. HMS Jersey saw action prior to the Revolutionary War, uh, most notably in such wars like the Seven Years' War, or what we know as the French and Indian War. By 1771, uh, one year after the infamous uh, Boston Massacre had, had occurred, the HMS Jersey was converted into a hospital ship. But between 1779 and 1780, she was converted again but this time as a prison ship. Privateersman uh, William Russell, he had been in prison for over 14 months in England at Mill. So that means, folks, at minimum, he would have been there for about a year and two months, but in actuality, he spent two and a half years total at Mill. He got released in June of 1782. So that means that... um, more than likely, uh, William Russell would have been sent to Mill as late as, say, late 1779 or somewhere right after uh, 17, right after the year 1780 started. Now, I'm sure some of you are wondering, how in the world did this guy get released? Because it happened, folks. Believe it or not, he got released from Mill. But how did it happen? Well, he, he got released in June of 1782 as part of a prisoner exchange and got sent back to Boston where he arrived come mid-August. That's where his family was. However, his stay was very short because a few days later, he enlisted on board another privateer. Unfortunately, this privateer got captured, that uh, William uh, Russell um, was a part of, got captured by a British warship on September the 16th of 1782. But the, um, the, but the British warship did not take uh, William Russell and everyone else captured to England. Instead, William Russell and everyone else who was captured got placed aboard HMS Jersey, stationed in New York City. Two months after first being placed aboard the Jersey, Russell wrote to his wife describing um, and this is not in quotes, uh, but the, but based upon how I uh, went about paraphrasing it, he uh, wrote to his wife describing how he was now in the worst of places, including being short on clothing to all uh, to all other fundamental essentials. Well, when we think of all other fundamental essentials, what could we be thinking of? Um, access to food, access to um, beverage, like say a quart of beer. Uh, access to um, proper, um, what do you call it, Uh, access, lacking access to um, blankets or a pillow. It could be fair to say that um, William Russell, along with everyone else who is now placed aboard the Jersey, HMS Jersey, that they really are in probably one of the most um, barbaric of um, jail-like facilities that one could possibly be inhabiting. Now, as I said early on, before we began this uh, podcast uh, episode, I'm going to mention it again. Cruelty and inhumanity did exist on both sides during during the Revolutionary War's duration. However, the worst, or the most horrific of experiences, centered around being confined to British prison ships in New York, Believe it or not, there were 17 total number of prison uh, ships in New York during the Revolutionary War. Some served as hospitals, but it was less than five that actually served as uh, makeshift hospitals. The vessels that became uh, British uh, prison ships were not uh, your top—at one time, they were um, top-of-the-line vessels. They were grand for their time but now they are um how you call it they're not attractive looking vessels now folks these warships were well past their prime in other words they're well past their glory days they have now become floating vessels new york had the largest number of prison ships which also meant the largest number of prisoners now i should point out that other cities like boston um philadelphia even Charleston, South Carolina, there were some other cities that did have uh, prisoner of, um, that had prison ships. But they did not have uh, the same numbers of ships in terms of total number like um, New York City had. And they did not also have the same um, concentration or what we would call um, overall number of uh, prisoners as, say, New York City would have had per the prison ships. So think about it, 17 uh, British prison ships that could all be functioning at one time. And, you know, the ships may have been originally designed to hold, say, maybe 300 people. I think it could be fair to say, of course, I don't know if I should give the number away now, but I probably should just give you all a heads up that we could be uh, learning here shortly that the number of people aboard these uh, prison ships in terms of... uh, American uh, troops, Navy seamen, and the privateersmen could be probably exceeding the what the average uh, capacity w- was originally intended. Large numbers of prisoners of war was what led to the greater need for prison ships in general. So, I'm sure some of you are thinking, why in the world did prison ships even need to come about? Well, it was because of the large number of prisoners of war. So we do need to go back to the summer of 1776 when uh, British forces um, came into New York, and they came by the, well, British forces came in by the thousands. I mean, there were thousands of ships that came in, and um, they were pretty much um, making a, a, a huge statement that, you know, okay, you know, you may have driven us from Boston, but now we're bringing in the big guns. We're bringing the whole nine yards in, so... Um when the British uh, prevailed in New York in 1776, yes, they, um, they, had, they got New York in their hands, but what did they get in their hands as well? Countless numbers of prisoners of war being on the American side. So the large number of prisoners originally got placed into non-traditional jail facilities, uh, such as uh, churches, government buildings, Believe it or not, folks, even sugar houses that were structures uh, one one time used for refining to storing sugar and molasses. And when those buildings filled up, the inmates got sent to uh, the prison got sent to prison ships. Okay? So that's how that's where we get the prison of the prisoner of uh, warships, folks. It was because after the uh, churches, the government buildings, uh, sugar houses, all, once all those buildings got filled up in New York, the British don't have really anywhere else to send what's left of the prisoners, but the only place they can really afford to put them in is aboard these uh, ships. And so by placing um, what was left of the inmate population aboard the British um, prison ships, the British believed that the that the greater conflict itself would eventually end, and that okay with all these prisoners, that maybe Britain's subjects would finally come to their senses and realize that well we're just no longer a match for the world's mightiest army and navy. Where were many of the prison ships uh, secured or stationed? Well, I know many of you are probably already saying, well, Kirk, didn't you already just say New York City? Yes, I did. But where do you think many of the prison ships were secured or stationed, or I should say anchored at? Um, where do you think they all would have been uh, stationed? I mean, not we're not talking the heart of New York City, but I will tell you this. They were uh, stationed somewhere not far from what we now know as present-day New York City. It was in a place called Wallabout Bay. That's spelled W-A-L-L-A-B-O-U-T, Wallabout Bay, which was a small body of water in the upper New York Bay across the East River from Manhattan, where present-day Brooklyn Navy Yard stands today. So if that gives you any indication of where Wallabout Bay is, uh, whenever, if you see the Brooklyn Navy Yard or hear about it, think about uh, Wallabout Bay, where, it sent, where let's see, here we are in the year 2023, so American Revolutionary War, 1775, 1783, so think about it, 240, 248 years ago, or 247 years ago, I should say, uh, was 1776, so that's where... Um, the uh, prisoner of war ships were um, located in uh, Wallabout Bay, in what we now know as the present-day Brooklyn Navy Yard. So Wallabout Bay was chosen for precautionary purposes to prevent against the spread of disease, given diseases themselves had become very prevalent on prison ships. Well, the land along the edge of Wallabout had little inhabitation, which led to greater protection and more isolation. Well, all of that's great, but even if you, even if there is little inhabitation on Wallabout Bay, in terms from a human population, isn't it fair to say that there that disease is still going to be rampant aboard the ships, even if the um, even if Wallabout Bay um, has um, very has um, small inhabitation? Uh, sure, I, I would say so. Why had H M S Jersey become so notorious? Well, here we go, folks. For starters, the conditions down below were extremely poor or appalling as prisoners got stuck with no proper lighting, nor fresh air, and rations provided weren't sufficient. In other words, minimal to below minimal standards. Secondly, around, listen to this, folks, this is where the number comes in. Eleven hundred men were imprisoned onto a ship originally designed to handle just four hundred sailors. So, can you imagine being one of sail? Let's say it's at its max. Let's say it exceeded four hundred. You have eleven hundred men below. Can you imagine being crowded side by side, and just, uh, in just knowing what could have let happen in terms of diseases spreading left and right, people dying, um. And I kid you not, folks. I've seen documentaries of the HMS jersey, and there and it was it was rat infested below. So you were dealing with um rats, um, you were you were dealing with everything that is uh hellish, if that's the best way to sum it up. Third, as the war and the conflict expanded and British forces endured further battle defeats, treatment towards the prisoners grew worse as guardsmen themselves took out their own personal frustrations towards those held captive. We know that that historians know that roughly six to eight men died per day during the time the HMS Jersey served as a prison as a served as a prison uh, ship. Every morning while the sun rose, the guardsmen above yelled out loud in quotations, folks, rebels, bring up your dead. In other words, by bringing up the dead, new room was created for the next set of prisoners to make to make um, their way down into the hold. Up to eight prisoners per day from the Jersey whom died got buried on shore daily prior to the British surrender at Yorktown from october night on October nineteenth seventeen eighty one That means folks that roughly forty eight to fifty six prisoners were dying per week aboard the Jersey. Very, very sad. And not knowing, you know, think about it, folks. There's no telephones back then, so no prisoner can um, say to the British officials, can I write, you know, can I make a call home? Can I write a letter to my family telling them where I'm at? <laughs> it's, a, it's a horrible feeling to know that your family probably doesn't know if you're dead or alive, but not knowing that you were actually placed aboard a uh, prisoner a prison ship under the most inhumane of conditions knowing that it's only just a matter of time before you do meet your ultimate fate. What were summer and winter conditions like aboard the HMS Jersey? Well during the summer uh, prisoners endured temperatures that at times went right or around um, just above a hundred degrees given they had no access to proper cooling ventilation. Think about it, no air conditioners, folks. I mean, I just can't imagine the stench. Beyond horrible. And during the wintertime, prisoners were often forced to huddle together to avoid becoming frozen to death. Think about it, no heating purposes either. Prisoners ate food that was downright awful. How about molded bread to beef that wasn't lean but solid, hard to cut through, then to consuming putrid water. I'm not trying to gross you all out, folks, but we need to put ourselves in in the uh, prisoner of wars, um, in the uh, men's uh, shoes who became prisoners of war aboard HMS Jersey. You know, if you ask me if if I was forced to become a prisoner of war, I would have rather been a prisoner of war in England than versus being on the HMS Jersey. It, it seemed to me, it sounds like prisoners at Fortin and at Mill got a little bit better of treatment than they did um, aboard HMS Jersey. Now, be careful with what I'm about ready to say here next. Again, I'm not here to gross you all out, but we just need to be reminded of things that we could easily be taken for granted today. If poor quality or food to foul water was bad enough aboard the Jersey, what about Jersey's proximity to the shore come low tide? Why, Why does that matter? Well, folks, at low tide, Water itself became shallow, meaning the waste of nearly 1,000 prisoners got disposed daily. Tidal flushing in wallabout Bay was very weak to where the waste itself increased, resulting in a longer decaying process. So think about it, folks. There are no toilets on this ship. There is no proper um, sanitation. There's no proper... um, plumbing in terms of um, waste going where it's supposed to be. I'm, again, I'm not trying to gross you all out, but this is what happened. So, and, and we need to be reminded of the fact that, uh, that it's fair to say that the men who, who became prisoners of war aboard HMS Jersey, they would have probably given anything in the world to have modern day um, accessories to go into a bathroom, but that just did not exist during that time. Were Americans aware of the sufferings endured by soldiers, that is, Continental Army soldiers, Navy men to privateersmen? Yes, they were aware. 1777, uh, the year of 1777, I should say, saw Continental Congress open an, an investigation into multiple complaints about British acts of barbarity towards American servicemen. The primary focus of the investigation centered upon brutal conditions within prison ships, the report confirmed that prisoners, in fact, had been treated with the highest degrees of barbarity known to exist and many died as a direct result of inhumane treatment. 1781, or the year of 1781, saw Congress look into the matter again and discovered the situation was worse than it had been four years before. Well, we're about ready to wrap this up here, folks, but I do have to tell you all some, num- some more numbers here. Historians have determined that nearly 8,000 prisoners were registered by the British as being on board HMS Jersey throughout, revolution, throughout the Revolutionary War's duration. 8,000 prisoners, folks. By getting hulked in 1779, and I'm sure some of you are wondering, what in the world does hulk or hulked mean? That refers to a ship staying afloat that would no longer be capable of returning to sea, that is to um, active duty. So by when the HMS Jersey got hulked in 1779, she stayed afloat but was no longer going to be capable of returning to sea, and that's when she officially became a uh, prisoner of war ship. The U.S. Department of Defense confirmed that 4,435 deaths, resulted on the uh, on the uh, battlefield, that is, American uh, battle deaths. 20,000 men died in captivity to to disease. 11,000 Americans died while aboard prison ships during the Revolutionary War's duration. Many perished from disease or malnutrition. Wouldn't it be fair to say, folks, that not everyone died humanely or let alone peacefully? We should keep in mind, folks, that it was one thing to be shot on the battlefield, but for every man who was shot on the battlefield, two or three other men died from disease. And it is sad, it is uh, important to be reminded, folks, that the majority of the men who lost their lives by paying the ultimate sacrifices so that uh, the present generation and future generations could live in freedom died from um, either uh, from uh, disease um, related uh, matters or to let a, or to being a uh, prisoner of war where ultimately those prisoners died from inhumane conditions and inhumane conditions also being uh, malnutrition I can't make this. Uh, tr- I can't make this as a definitive comparison. But when I learned about all this, from uh, watching uh, programs on television about uh, the prisoners of war during the American Revolutionary uh, American Revolution, uh, most notably from the HMS Jersey, to me, I saw it as a. Um, I, it, to me, I saw it as a Holocaust. Now I know that I can't compare uh, eleven thousand Americans dying on board prison ships to 6 million Jews who lost their lives in World War II. Those numbers cannot, um, cannot be compared. But, I, but it is fair to say that there was a Holocaust in the American Revolutionary War. And that was, uh, when I think of the Holocaust in an American Revolutionary War, I think of all those men who died aboard the HMS Jersey. And we should be we should remember all of those men who died aboard prison prisoner ships of war because they um, they made the ultimate sacrifices by uh, protecting those on land and on sea who uh, were still carrying on the fight. We should also be reminded that many of those men were given two choices: if you take up arms with the British, you will be forgiven of all your sins, and but if you if you don't take up if you don't take up with being on our side, the British, then you will remain here as a prisoner of war and stay here until you uh, no longer can uh, live. In other words, you'll stay here till you die. So we must be reminded of the sacrifices that were made. And just remember, once again, that not everyone died uh, humanely or uh, I should say peacefully. Well, when I'm on the air again next next time, we're going to learn about um, the conflict from uh, within uh, the American um, the American side with uh, privateersmen and Navy men. Thank you again, and wherever you all may be, continue to stay safe.